Good evening, Hope. Open up to Ephesians chapter 5. If I hadn't had the pleasure of meeting you yet, uh, my name's Tom and I uh, have the honor of being the, uh, the pastor and preacher uh, here at Hope Church. And we're going through Ephesians because we just love the Bible. Amen? Amen. Uh, we preach line by line and book by book. And this is one of those, those sections that we get to which, which, which sort of tests the preacher. Is he the kind of guy that, that skirts around what the Bible says? Or is he the kind of guy that will say it but, but be really apologetic about what it says? And like, this is my idea. Don't shoot the messenger. I, I don't really ne- even necessarily agree with this. This is Paul. Take it to him when he's in heaven. You know, uh, uh, that sort of thing. And, and that's just not me at all. I love what the Bible says about marriage. I love what it calls us to do as we image Jesus together. And, and we need to remember the context that we're studying marriage in. Marriage is being studied as one of the ways that we are to walk uprightly as children of God. So, so it is not the case that every Christian is going to marry. It is not the case that a single is in sin because they're not married. Marriage is not a part of your identity in Christ. However, marriage is one of the, 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 the broad uh, general calls to people as humans, and it is the reality that almost all of us will be married at some point, and therefore the Scriptural writers and the New Testament apostles would be remiss if they did not command Christians how to think about marriage Christianly. And so we find in the New Testament uh, uh, the broad spectrum, honor marriage, let it be held in honor by all, don't sin against it. But then so much advice, so many commands, and tonight we start getting into the relationship dynamics that God has designed in marriage, namely submission to the husband and headship of the husband. So that's where we're going to go tonight. But of course, this is um, this, the, the, the reminder that has been coming at us for, the, for weeks and weeks and weeks, that the beginning of the whole of Ephesians, chapter 1 through 3, has been the lesson, the reminder that we are who we are because we are in Christ. Our union to Jesus Christ by faith means that though we are sinners, God looks at us as righteous. Because even though we are, we are failures, God looks at us as those that he has given a mission to, to be fruitful in working. Even though in ourselves we are dead, in Christ we are alive. Even though in ourselves we are corrupt, in Jesus Christ we're made whole, we're made righteous, and we are able to live rightly. And so basically, the commands that he makes to marriage is this, because you have been made right with God through Jesus Christ by faith, if you are now children of light in that sense, then live as children of light in your marriage relationships. You're going to wives today, husbands next week, uh, uh, children and fathers and parents uh, the, the week after and continually go through all of Paul's commands to the Christian household. So we're in Ephesians now. Go to chapter 5 and I'm going to read verse 22 to verse 25, uh, to verse 24 rather. And then we go to the the end of the chapter and read verse 31 to 33. Hear now the word of the living God. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its saviour. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their own husbands. End of the chapter, verse 31. 
He quotes Genesis, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each wife see, sorry, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. May God bless his own word in our midst this evening. Amen. Well, we start, even though we started reading from verse 22, the, 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 the theme of this whole chapter really starts in this section from verse 18 and onwards, where Paul has already told the Ephesians, be filled with the Spirit, and then he starts making commandments about how to do that. And one of the commands that he made is that we as Christians, in verse 21, must submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then he says in verse 22, it's really a continuing sentence. In fact, in the original Greek, the word submit is not in verse 22. This, in the Greek, really, the, the, the English translation would be, submit to one another out of reference for Christ, wives to your husbands, as the church does to Christ. And so uh, uh, this, this submission of wives to husbands is just one of the ways that all Christians submit to God's order in the world. So once, when we start talking about submission, we need to start with this. Women, wives, hopeful wives, not yet wives, engaged future wives, new wives, older wives, experienced wives. When the Bible speaks of submission, the, one of the, the first thing you need to acknowledge is that you are not ultimate. You are not ultimate. In fact, every Christian needs to learn this. You are not ultimate. Jesus is. That's why we're told, submit to one another. And the wife in the marriage is told, submit, because you're not Lord. You're not ultimate. Everyone submits to somebody else. Everybody is underneath Jesus in some manner. So we all must submit, and wives must submit to husbands. You're not ultimate, Jesus is. But also we know that you're not uh, ultimate, and neither your husband is ultimate, Jesus is. So, so Paul doesn't start saying, submit to your husband because he's the Lord. Rather, he starts out, submit to your husband as to the Lord. It's ultimately, as verse 21 says, out of reverence to Christ and out of obedience to Christ that you submit to your husband. So, so this isn't a matter of men and husbands are ultimate. No, Jesus is. But also, neither is culture ultimate. Paul does not, in this passage, start pulling on the culture of his own day and start trying to normalize either one of them and then impose them onto the church. In Paul's day, as he's sitting there in a, in a, in a house in, under arrest in Rome, he is, he is surrounded by a, by a patriarchal society and one that has a lot of tendencies that are abusive and destructive against women. However, many people don't know this, but Paul's uh, 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 period in history um, is also buffeted by about 100 years or so of what historians can really look at and say a feminist progressive wave that is hitting the Roman Empire. And so women are casting off their signs of authority, they're bucking off their husbands, they're trying to run for office more. And, and so the Roman Empire is actually in somewhat of a, in somewhat of a feminist uh, 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 a takeover, and yet Paul looks to neither one of them for his normalcies. He doesn't look to the feminist progressivism and say, this is Christian norm. Neither does he look at the abusive patriarchalism and say, this is the biblical norm. 
Rather, he says, let's look at Scripture. Let's look at what God says. Let's look at the gospel and find that our design for marriage is there. The Christian view of marriage will almost never, ever be normal and accepted widely in the culture. It largely is, is going to be opposed by sinful man's cultural tendencies. So we should ask the question, no, we should, we should just repractice what we started last week. Marriage is God's idea and it is a good idea, amen? amen? Submission is God's idea and it is a good idea, amen? amen? Okay, just as many people, that's good. You know, you know, or at least all the husbands, uh, you know that you can't actually amen marriage is a good idea if you're not willing to amen, submission is a good idea. Because submission is part and parcel of God's design for marriage. So the first question we'll ask is, what is submission really? What, is it, what does it mean? What does that word mean? Because there's all sorts of stigma or negative weight that is attached to that word. It can sound like subjugation or it can sound like being taken control over. Submit is actually a military term. I know that this sounds... This doesn't make it sound any more feminine and, and romantic and beautiful, but it is technically a, a, a military term that means fall in line. If any one of us was to walk onto an Australian military base, we would find ourselves in an atmosphere of structure and hierarchy. And if you were to be going to an assembly one day, or the, when the brigade would all come together, etc., and you heard maybe the, maybe the colonel or whatever yell out, fall in line, and then you would start seeing all of these different people of all of these different uh, positions and ranks, they would all be falling into their line and their lines behind their, their superiors. That act right there is precisely the Greek word submit. It means fall in line. It means know the structure, know your role, and know where your role fits within that structure and go and be there. So if a lieutenant came up and tried to stand at attention in the colonel's spot, you know that he would have a baton to meet with to the side of his head. You would say, hey, you haven't fallen in line. Find your place and fulfill your responsibility. If the colonel was still sitting off with the, with the uh, cadets and he was just you know, playing darts in the mess hall, somebody would even have to say to the colonel, oi, fall in line. Fulfill your obligation to everybody else and be where your role obligates you to be. That is the sense in which both husbands and wives need to submit. Husbands need to submit in the sense that they say, I recognize God's structure for marriage. I recognize that as a man, I am a husband. And therefore, as a husband, I need to fall in line as the leader and head of the relationship. And wives have to do the same thing. They have to say, I need to fall in line and, 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 and uh, uh, fulfill the obligations that my role puts on me as a wife. So wives, don't try and be the husband. Your husband, I'm going to tell you now, does not want a husband, okay? That's why he married you and made sure you knows that you're a gal. He doesn't want a dude. He doesn't want another leader. He doesn't want a husband. He wants a wife. So don't try and be the husband. Be the wife. Don't try and be the leader or the head. Be the body. Be the follower. Be the helper, not the authority. That's, that's not your position. So know your role and, and race to it and fill it and uphold all of your obligations that that role puts on you. What is involved? Or, or rather, let's say, who is involved? If that's submission, find your position and fill it well. Who is involved? 
Verse 22 starts out, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. The first word there is wives. That is an all-encompassing universal. As long as you are a wife, this command is to you. He doesn't say submissive wives. People who already feel like this is your personality, if you're the submissive type, uh, then this command, that would amount to really commanding nothing that they're not already doing. Paul is saying, even to you headstrong wives, listen up. Even to you who feel like this just isn't God's best for me, listen up. Just, just because you don't feel like this would apply to you doesn't, doesn't uh, remove the obligation on you. Paul says wives, just, just blanket term. If you're in a covenant relationship called marriage right now to a husband, this applies to you. All wives, regardless of your spiritual maturity, your age, your intellect, your culture, your income, or anything else, if you're a wife, you are commanded to submit. But he says to your own husband. This does not mean, therefore, that all women must submit to all men. Not the case, and amen, hallelujah, those gals who just know that the monkeys and the apes and the dogs out there that are called men these days, you are glad and God frees you from the abusive obligation for you to consider yourself submitted to all of them. You're not. This is a part of the covenantal protection that God puts over you in marriage is that you only have one guy who you have to submit to and, 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 lead, uh, and, be, and follow his leadership and you get to choose who it is. They're not allowed to walk past you and pick one of you and throw you in your knapsack and run off with you to their kingdom or bonk you on the head and select you and you get to... that uh, Forced marriage is no biblical marriage at all. Chosen, voluntary, consensual marriage is biblical marriage, and therefore that's a part of the woman's obligation. As you're, as you're courting or as you're dating, as you're getting to know this guy, you need to know your right to choose who you want to marry because you're going to be submitting to him forever, until you die or until he dies. And it'll be suspicious if he dies very quickly, so don't try. You have the authority to choose who it is that you submit to, but it is only your husband that you submit to. That means you don't submit to him yet just because he's your boyfriend. He doesn't have covenantal obligations as your head. He doesn't get the authority over you. This means that you're, even your fiancé is not yet your head over the covenant of marriage until you are in that covenant formally and finally. And verse 23 here says, For the husband is the head of the wife. You need to see, this is an asymmetrical statement. He says, wives, you need to choose to be submissive, and I know it's possible that you're not. And then he says, because husbands are the head of the wife, and that's not an optional statement. Husbands are nowhere called to be the head of their wives because it's literally not a choice. It's a reality. God doesn't say, if you are responsible and if you take headship, you'll be head. He says, if you're the XY chromosome person in a heterosexual marriage, you're the head. Males are called husbands in marriage. You are the head. And therefore, you can't abdicate the responsibility. You can't say, well, I know we're told to submit uh, to my husband, but we really agreed that I'm more competent, that I'm more capable, and that I'm more intelligent. I've got more of a leadership style about me. He decided to submit to me. No, he's still the head. Guess who Jesus still holds responsible as head? The husband that's trying to submit. 
It's like if you were driving a car and the husband is driving and, and the woman is next to him and he decides to just be passive, hands off the wheel, he doesn't care, his wife's a piece of work, she's always back, back, back seat driving anyway, she can take control and so he just sits there and she is forced to reach over and control how the marriage car goes. When they run a curb or smash into another car, the police officer will pull them over and speak to who and find who the person in the driver's seat, the husband. Or, or if he's sitting there and he goes, look, she's a, she's a real talker. I just do whatever she tells me. She's going to be responsible for all this. And so he just turns wherever she says. He speeds up as much as she says, and he just follows her orders. Guess what happens when he breaks the law? He's held responsible. He can't tell the copper, come on, you, you know what they're like. You know, she's just in my ear. He goes, you're the driver. You are always responsible in this role. And it's the same with the head of the relationship. You can't not be head. You literally cannot stop being the head. You just have the decision, gentlemen, whether you will be active, loving, initiating godly heads, or whether you will be passive or abusive heads, and God's call is to be loving leaders, as we will look at next week. So, who's involved in this submission? Every wife to her own husband and only him. And verse 20 closes out, as to that Lord. In other words, he's saying, you submit to your husband out of your obedience to Jesus. Your submission to your husband is a manifestation or an element of your submission to Jesus, which means, let's just get really stark. If you're a wife that struggles to submit to your husband, very honestly, it's because you struggle to submit to Jesus. An unsubmissive spirit towards the husband is really nothing more then, or it is at least not less than, an unsubmissive spirit to Jesus, which is sin. And therefore, what is being called here is, he's saying, your husband is not the ultimate Lord. I'm not just calling you to do that. He's saying, I'm calling you to submit to him as a type of Lord, as a type of leader, we might say in our common day. Lord's still a biblical enough term. But he's not ultimate. Jesus is ultimate. So if your husband's ever hard to submit to, if you're ever struggling, look past your husband to the great husband. Look past your head to your ultimate head, Jesus Christ. And he says, submit to me. And in your submission to me, submit also to your husband. <clears throat> what are Paul's reasons? As we look at this, this submission, people try and nitpick this and go, well, this is cultural. Paul's just repeating the patriarchalism of his day. Or, or Paul's just responding to the heavily feminist society of Ephesus. And, and these scholars can't agree, but they're all wrong. And so basically, we're going to look at what is Paul's reason? What is he saying is the grounds of his exhortation that wives should submit to their husbands? And of course, he looks at nature. He looks at the Bible itself, and he looks at redemption. Creation, God's word, and redemption are, the, are, the, uh, uh, are the, the grounds that he argues this from in his own reasoning. So we see, even in this passage, he's, always spoken, he's already spoken of nature. Husbands are the head of wives. That's how it is. That's just how it is. That's nature. But he goes even further, and at the end of the passage, which we read before, verse 31, he goes back to the creation ordinance. He says, creation worked like this. God made a man. He struggled. God made a woman. He brought them together. Therefore, a man shall leave his mother and, and father and become one flesh with his wife. That's how it was. We're all, everybody here still male and female? Absolutely we are. Yes, let's just repeat that. Everybody here male and female? 
all right, we're a good 21st century audience. Uh, and, and he says, well, as long as we're male and female, here's the structure of marriage, male first, female second in creation order, therefore male primary, female secondary in the sense of covenant structure, not equality, not value, not love, but in the structure of authority in the home. It's as if Paul argues this way, God made Adam first, God made Eve second. God made Adam ruler, God made Eve to be ruled by her husband. God made Adam, sorry, God gave Adam the truth, the commands and the laws in the Garden of Eden, and then he gave Eve to learn the laws, the commands and the truths from her teacher, Adam. God gave Adam the authority, he gave Eve and told her to submit to Adam's authority, God gave Adam the mission of what to do, and he gave Eve the mission of joining Adam's mission. This is exactly the same uh, uh, argument from nature that Paul makes in 1 Timothy 2, when he says, why can't women be preachers and pastors? He says, well, that's not how creation works. I mean, we can see from Genesis, God made Adam first, then woman. And it's the exact same argument he makes in 1 Corinthians 11. So if we're going to take away this reasoning and say it's unbiblical, we're losing almost the whole of the Pauline corpus. That means all the letters that Paul wrote are out the window if we think this is merely cultural or wrong. But he says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 11. Hear his argument from nature. 1 Corinthians 11 Verse 3, he says, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. That is to say, God the Father brings into creation our, rede our Redeemer and Savior Jesus. He's the incarnate Christ, and, and God remains his head. He's in authority over, over Christ, touching his humanity. But more so, the head of every man is Jesus Christ, and any man in relationship or covenant of marriage has a wife in submission to him. Everybody's under authority except the, the omnipotent father of the Trinity. So, so unless you're him, everyone has to submit. Jesus submits, husbands submit to Jesus, and wives submit to husbands. It's, it's just a part of God's nature. But look at what he says in verse 7. He argues from nature, he says... Man is the image and the glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. Verse 9, neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. And Sorry, I skipped verse 8. Man was not made from woman, but woman from man. And man was not created for woman, but woman for man. So in other words, Adam was already there. She was made second. Adam was already there. She was taken out from his rib and created from him. Adam was already there with a mission. She was given to serve his mission. So she's made after him, she's made from him, and she's made for him. Now in that same little passage, Paul is quick to sort of balance the scales of any uh, hyper-authoritarianism or to balance the scales out of any uh, 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 pride that men might feel, like, yeah, women come from us, they serve us, we're the heads. Paul then goes, but just remember, the first woman came from a man, but every man since has come out of the body of a woman. Paul hates the gender wars. 
He hates the, God hates the gender wars. He despises when men try to get one up over women and use marriage and God's Bible to, to try and do that. Or he hates when women try and fight against men and say, and tear down men and try to use the Bible or their own feelings to do it. God rathers when we acknowledge our spiritual interdependence. No man is independent from the goodness of a woman that is his companion. No man has been brought into the world without a woman's reproductive system and body and nurturing. And also, no woman is her own head. She is either under her father as a young woman or under her husband as a married woman. We need each other. So that is to say, Paul, Paul argues from nature and says, here's how God created us. It's just that black and white. It keeps on going that way in marriage. Well, then he argues from God's word. Simply in, in verse 31, we see him quote Moses. He says, this is how God's very first biblical author, Moses, who wrote the first five books of the Old Testament, this is how he said it right from the very beginning. He says, therefore, a man shall leave his mother and father and take to himself a wife, and they shall become one flesh. In other words, Paul's saying the first book of the Bible says this. He's now writing 1,600 years later, and the imagery only becomes all the clearer in the last book of Revelation. In other words, Genesis to Revelation is Paul's argument for marriage. It is a universal testimony of Scripture. All of God's Word agrees. Women submit to their husbands because of God's good design in marriage. And then, of course, he also, uh, uh, he also points to redemption. So look at verse 32. He says, this woman, male, marriage, this whole mystery of how we join together in one flesh this mystery is profound, but I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. That is that he's saying, not only, if, if we try and buck off submission, and if we try and, try and abuse wives, or if we try and do without gender roles, it's not merely that we're sinning against the very nature that we inhabit ourselves in. It's not merely that we're sinning against the created order. We're doing that. It's not only that we're sinning against God's clear Voice throughout all of Scripture, Genesis to Revelation, wives submit to their husbands. It's not just that we're sinning against that, and we are, but it is also the case that we are sinning against, and we are fighting against, and we are lying about the greatest story that this whole world exists to tell, which is God entering into human flesh to take for himself a bride that he must die for, he must bleed for, and he takes to himself forever. That is the marriage of Christ and the church. The, the, the book of Revelation tells us of, of the future day that's coming when Jesus comes back like a bridegroom and says, where is she? Where's my woman? I've waited long enough. Let's go have an amazing meal and a feast for all of eternity. My bride and I, the church and I, will give glory to my Father, the Savior of us all, who has ransomed them by my blood. That's where history is going. If we throw off submission and say, well, that was cultural, is the gospel cultural? Is Jesus saving the church only merely first century culture, but now in the 21st century, the church actually saves Jesus? Is headship passed and moved on and we've progressed from that? Well, have we progressed from being at needing a savior to save us from our sins? Absolutely not. This is the eternal truth. This is why God made us male and female. This is why God tells wives to submit, because of the gospel. So, 
Paul's argumentation is from nature, it is from the word, and it is from redemption itself. Do you see what, ladies, do you see what he doesn't name as a condition here? He doesn't say, submit to your man in as much as he's more spiritual than you. Submit to your man in as much as he can school you in a theological quiz. Submit to your man in as much as he can argue better than you, or he knows his Bible better than you, or he's a better leader than you, or he's more righteous and mature than you, or if he's been saved longer than you. None. In fact, he doesn't even make your husband being a Christian an obligation. Should Christians marry only Christians? Absolutely. But if you are in the unfortunate circumstance where your husband has walked away from the faith, or if you were both unsaved, got married, and then you got saved, and your husband is not yet an obedient, uh, is not yet a, a hearer of the word of God and the gospel, Paul doesn't say that that eradicates you having to submit to him. And if that's the case on one end of the spectrum, then it's also the case that any Christian husband who is yet imperfect, who is not as mature as he ought to be, who is not as spiritual as he ought to be, or who is in sin, you're Duty to submit is not even eradicated in that circumstance. His personality and spirituality is not a condition for your submission. Peter talks about this. You can go there if you would like. First Peter chapter 3. It says in the first two verses, he says, Likewise, he's, he's on a whole topic about submission to those that God puts over us for our good. And First Peter 3 says, Likewise, wives... You also be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. So not only is your husband not being a Christian or not acting like a Christian not an exception, it is in fact all the more important in that time to double down into honoring respectful submission so that your behavior might win his heart when your words cannot win his mind. That's what, that's what the Bible says, that you're, you are in a unique position, wives, of unsaved husbands or husbands who act unsaved. You're in the unique position to win his heart to the loveliness of the gospel and to show him every day, look at what somebody submitted to Jesus looks like. That's what, that's what Peter's command is for wives. Baxter says this, Richard Baxter in his book, uh, The Godly Household, he says, your husband, uh, you, if you have an ungodly husband, he says, their person may not demand honor. His personality, his behavior, his way of speech, his lifestyle, his person may not demand honor, but his status as husband does. He may not be the kind of guy that demands honor by his behavior, but if he is a husband, he is in a status that demands honor, even if he himself is dishonorable. And that's the command of, of Peter. Give honor to this man, try to win his heart over, but at no point use his ungodliness as an excuse for your ungodliness. All wives called to submit. Creation teaches this, scripture teaches this, redemption teaches this. Look at uh, uh, verse 24. We might ask as women, we go, okay, I'm, I'm convinced. The Bible tells me submit. It means fall in line. It means honor God through my obedience to him in this way. How much do I have to do that? I'm sure there's a limitation somewhere. 
can you help me find the edge of it? And Paul's, Paul says, sure, here's how much you submit. Verse 24, in everything. Guess what the Greek means? Everything, just all things, all of the things, all of the times, all of the ways, in everything. And here's what I think Paul knows. If we immediately say, okay, cool, but where's the exception? Then we're probably going to be the kind of people who find some way to make your situation every day an exception. I'm submissive, you know, except for this hundred book, uh, uh, this hundred page book of reasons that I don't have to in this circumstance. So, so Paul is actually more generally saying your attitude, your life, your areas of life, every part of your life needs to be in submission to your own husband in a broad spectrum way, a generalized, thorough, all of life encompassing submission. Uh, for example, parenting styles, moods around the home, money matters, Appropriate dress, leaving the home, how the kids get educated, church attendance, church membership, which church you go to, spiritual things like that. Everything is under the responsibility of the man, and therefore the wife needs to see herself as submitting. Now, this doesn't mean there's no area of her life that she doesn't have some responsibility to act without a written permission slip from the husband. This means that she's never allowed to tell herself, in this area of my life, I'm not counted as a wife, I am wholly independent, and I have only myself to answer to. No one in marriage is allowed to say that. That's what the covenant of marriage is. My whole life for yours. Your whole life for mine. All that I am to you and all that you are to me, you are never able to act without reference to your wifehood, wives. And what makes this easier in sort of a more generalized sense, instead of getting too meticulous about what things is everything that we submit to, I would try and, I, I say this to the gents and I'm going to repeat it now, what men need is a mission for their life, an idea of what has God put me on earth to do, how am I particularly going to obey the general call to win souls and build the church, how is my employment, my gifts, my life, my time, my energy going to be used, and what's my 5, 10, 20 year plans, should the Lord be gracious enough to give me that time, and therefore that's what, what the husband is doing when he's asking you ladies, will you marry me? Biblically, what he's saying is, will you join my life mission to serve Jesus and live in submission to Jesus this way? And wives, when you said yes, what you were saying is, yes, I'm going to join your mission in serving Jesus. Do you therefore see, men, how brutally annoying it is for your wife if you are idle without goals and without a vision and mission for your life? If your life is treading in the water and you just keep on saying, shush, come on, submit to me, do what I say, and she's going, but where are we going? What are we doing? What are my, what are my gifts being used for? What is my spirituality and my, my image of godness? What am I using it all for? And so men without a mission for the family, without a, without a momentum and a direction for the marriage will, will do great dishonor to their wives and be of great annoyance. So, he says, in everything, and of course, now that we've said in everything enough times, we can now say there are some exceptions. But the exceptions are not areas of your life you get to keep for yourselves. The areas are where those things require a dishonoring to Jesus Christ. I've got a few uh, dot points here taken from one of the commentators I was reading this week, Kent Hughes. He says, do not submit when... 
His leadership violates a biblical principle. Maybe it's not a direct law that he's breaking. Maybe it is. But maybe it's just a vague biblical principle that you're pretty sure this is not honoring of. Don't follow him down that road. Instead, be the good, godly, submissive wife you're supposed to be and say, hey, wait on. You need to prove to me that this is God-honoring. You need to prove to me that this is one of the reasons I married you for, which is helping me obey Jesus more. Can you show me from Scripture? Can you tell me how it's not sin? And so don't follow him if you're convinced his leadership violates biblical principle. Secondly, if it compromises your relationship with Christ somehow. It could be a number of things. Thirdly, he says, do not submit when it, is, when it requires you to violate your conscience. Sometimes, sometimes there's not a black and white command in Scripture, but you're not comfortable doing something that your husband's asking you to do, or he's asking you to be quiet about him doing. And husbands, this is where we need to be sensitive. She's not one of the guys that you can just say, shut up, get it done. She is your closest companion and a tender uh, wife that you need to pastor. You have to be able to say, okay, well, here's your conscience. It thinks this is sin. How can I inform your conscience with the word of God? How can I help you see things in light of scripture so that your confidence is, so that your conscience is clean? And you can say, I want to joyfully do this thing with you. Husbands are required not to force their wives down roads, but to teach and pastor their wives so that they can follow in good conscience. Fourthly, you do not submit if doing so violates your protection of the family. If your husband is a danger to your family, or if your husband is putting your family in danger to others, or if your husband is not protecting you from the danger, very evidently being opposed by, uh, imposed by others, then at that point the wife needs to say, I'm not going there. I'm not going to be with him. I'm not going to do, do that thing with, with them. I don't feel safe. I think our children are put at risk there. I don't submit. I don't honor that. I don't, I don't agree. That is the wife, especially when she's a mother, that is her obligation to herself and to her children and ultimately to God. This means that if there is abuse, physical, verbal, emotional, uh, sexual, if there is abuse like that, then the wife owes it to herself as an image bearer of God, to her children as their protector and mother, and to God whose image she bears, and to her husband who she said she would honor, to disobey and to, to get some distance, to leave that situation, to get some help maybe from police, to get some help probably from the elders and figure something out. Submission does not mean bear up under abuse. Not the meaning. And lastly, do not submit if it enable, if he is leading you to enable his sin. He's asking you to lie to the coppers. Just lie to the elders about this. Just sort of cover up something. Just try and, try and help him out so that he can keep on uh, getting uh, ungodly uh, monies or, or doing some kind of sinful side hustle, whatever it may be, or what he's doing to children or how rough he is, something like that. If your submission requires you to enable his sin, then because you love him, because you're a wife that wants the best for him, because you honor him and want him to be the most godly man he can be, you won't do it. You will refuse, you will honor him, and it needs to be said that in all of these situations, when we say don't submit, don't follow, it doesn't mean throw off his headship, take it to the streets, demean him and degrade him. It doesn't mean that. It means in your spirit of submission, 
in your honoring, respectful tone, sometimes really firm, sometimes maybe not as so, you need to address the problem and say, in this area, because I submit to you as my head under Jesus, in this area, I refuse to go with you. That's what we're commanded. <clears throat> Here's some practical guides. I know that we're all sitting here going, great, awesome, 100% agree, couldn't have said it better myself. We are full on board with complementarian gender roles in marriage. Amen, somebody. All right, well... Guys, take note of who didn't amen that. Uh, <clears throat> all right, and, and here's some practical. So I get some practical guidelines. Maybe you're a young gal going, I hope to be married. I think I get this. Can you get a bit more practical just to test whether I really get it? Or, or maybe you're a wife who's, who's struggling with this. And you're it is hard submitting to my husband. I, give me some help. Here's, here's a few practical guidelines as to how submission should work. First of all, just generally recap. Acknowledge that in marriage, God has designed a structure and your responsibility as a wife is to assume the role of that wife and fulfill your obligations to your husband in honor and respect. Secondly, respond to and be responsive to his love, his affection, and his leadership. Be a responsive follower. We're not that smart. Please don't make us guess what you're thinking, okay? Don't be the, the, the bland face, you know, where do you want to go tonight? I don't know, where do you want to go? And I will tell you, after being there for an hour with my mood, whether you, whether you got it right. And I will grade you on a scale, in my mind, silent, you won't hear me, but I will grade you on a scale of one to purple, which is better. You have to figure it out. And I'm thinking in Chinese, so you have to figure, right? And you go, this is like trying to crack some Russian spy's vault, okay? Guys are just not as complex as you in interpersonal relationships. We're kind of just black and white, so to say it as it is, please tell us what you're thinking kind of dudes. We need that in communication. So I'm saying when a guy, when, not a guy, when your husband... <laughs> is making a romantic move on you. That needs to be said. When your husband is making a romantic move on you, be responsive. Don't, don't shrug it off. Maybe a thank you, maybe a lean in, but a, can this wait? Or hey, maybe tomorrow, or maybe tomorrow night. Things like that. Be responsive and intentional Intentional in your, in your being led. If, if he's saying, I'm thinking about this for the kids, or I think maybe this for a holiday, or, I'd love to get you something, what would you like? Be responsive. Uh, don't demand that he reads your mind and knows everything he needs to do. Rather, be responsive, be responsive in your following. Help him lead you. Thirdly, Contribute and have input to the development of the family as much as possible. So whether it's ideas on education, how the schedule of the family of the family is working, whether there's balance, how the church is going, or where there's some needed uh, uh, increase in attendance, or maybe we're going to the wrong church, or are they preaching the Bible here? Uh, whether it's matters of <clears throat> how much your, your family is serving in ministry or, or when we need a holiday or what projects we're doing, what goals we have. In all these things, submission does not mean sit down, he's got it all together. It means he has chosen you to be the helper and a second brain on all important matters. He needs you. He needs you. And if he doesn't want you, he needs you all the more to have an input. It is your responsibility to tell him when an idea is silly, foolish, 
short, short-sighted, dumb, sinful. It's your job. Jump in, give some advice, say, look, I've been thinking this, I've been researching this, here's what I think, what do you think? Contribute, contribute, contribute. And husbands delight in a wife that loves to help by contributing. Fourthly, resist the temptation, resist the temptation at all costs to take control of everything. It is extremely easy that if he's getting things wrong, from your perspective at least, that if he's getting things wrong, you want to force his hand, say, that's it, leave it alone, you're an idiot, don't try, I'll do it, get your hands off, don't, don't worry. It's easy to sort of react and go, the easiest route is just me do it all and you just be along for the ride. This is especially the case with women who are ultra-competent, ultra-smart, business-type, you know, can just think a thousand steps ahead in all these different, you know, multiverses. You just know every outcome. You're good at skills. You can pick up skills and all that sort of thing. If you are ultra-competent and you have married a man, let's just say, who is not, who is barely competent, who is future-competent, right? He, he plans to be competent at some point about something. If you're in a relationship like that, it can be very hard that you don't just take control of everything because that's what is needed. Somebody needs to take control. He's not doing a good job. I'll do it. Paul's command would be in submission, do not take control of everything. And if the response is in frustration, well, that's a bit idiotic and difficult. I don't like that advice. I'll quote Richard Baxter who says, If you're an ultra-competent wife with a not-very-competent husband, you have to at least start by acknowledging the reality that you chose him. And you may be ultra-competent in a thousand other things, but apparently you're not very good at picking a leader. And that is the simple hardship that some wives have to realize. I would be so much better without him. Well, don't think that way, but also in God's sovereignty, you chose him. You chose him. You said the vows. You entered into covenant with this guy, and if you couldn't see this coming, this is part of what we have to deal with. And so Richard Baxter says, as difficult as it may be for women who are ultra-competent and husbands not so, he says, he uses this old Puritan proverb, and he says, a servant can help his master lead without himself becoming master. And he says, in the same way, a wife can help her husband lead without becoming the husband. He can, you can help your husband take control in an encouraging and an urging and a, and, a, and a pushing manner without being pushy, without putting the leash on him and dragging him around the yard. And so I would say, get him around guys that are more competent. Get him around guys that are more godly, more wise, more masculine, more helpful, more loving. Get him around those guys. Say, get some help, babe. Love you lots. I think this would be good for you. How about a guy's weekend away? Please come back changed. You know, get him to a good church, all those sorts of things. But at all times, not becoming the head, not becoming the controller, not being a control freak. The opposite of this is what the Proverbs called quarrelsomeness. Quarrelsome. That's the woman who wants to be in control and gets in control by climbing there with nagging, by tearing down the husband and then taking control. Here's what Proverbs say. Now, I'm, gonna, I'm reading the word of God. This is what God says. A foolish son is a ruin to his father, and a wife's quarreling is a continual dripping of rain. You know that's a military torture tactic? 
keep men awake in a dark cell by leaving a drip going off in the corner and they are they're bound down so they can't stop it. And the continual dripping drives them insane. I, I, Solomon knew that. He's saying that. A quarreling wife, dragging down, nagging down, constantly controlling. It's a torture tactic. Proverbs uh, 27 verse 14 to 16, he says the exact same thing again. Here's what he says. A continual dripping on a rainy day and a quarrelsome wife are alike. To restrain her is to restrain the wind. Yeah, trying to get her to stop quarrelling is like chasing a hurricane, trying to grab it all and stop it. Cannot be done. The more you try, the more you're just going to get hit by debris. Here's what else it says. Or restraining her is like grasping oil in one's right hand. You can't do it. To gra- if you put your hand into a vat of oil and tried to pick it up like it, like it was a salt, it would just leak. It's impossible. It's slippery. And so it is with to control or restrain a quarreling wife cannot be done from the outside. It is the responsibility of the wife to say, I will control my urges. I will control my controllingness and I will not be quarrelsome. No one else can do it for you. Verse, chapter 21, verse 9. It is better to live in a corner of the housetop than in a house with a quarrelsome wife. Okay? It is better to go camping, every guy knows that, than live with a quarreling, controlling wife. No, but not just camping. It is better to go camping on your roof, not altogether comfortable or nice, but, but not even on your roof, in the corner of your roof. Like limit the most unhospitable place in your house, the roof, to just a corner, set up tent there, and rain, hail, or shine, that's peace and tranquility compared to living with a quarrelsome wife. That's God's word. I didn't say it. He did. And if you don't like that one, maybe this one's better. Chapter 25, verse 24. It's better to live in the corner of a housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. That's the same verse. Yeah, he says it twice. Because the quarrelsome wives just said, that was rude. So he said it again. So, so we need to just, uh, just, just be encouraged. If you are the quarrelsome tending type, then in, be encouraged by the Holy Spirit. Don't do it. Whatever you are trying to achieve, it will not achieve. Whatever you are trying to bring to a solution, you are just going to push him away. Submission, gentleness, helping him lead you while not taking control is the obligation. Number five, resist every impulse to complain about your husband's leadership. Maybe he's doing it really well, and it annoys you, and so you talk to your prayer circle friends, or the messenger group, or the whatever it is, or you complain about him maybe to the kids, how, how ungodly, not to the kids, or, or, or you complain about him to other people, or, or drag his name through the mud at church. Maybe he's not doing a great job, and you go and do it, do it to him to sort of get him back. Just never, ever godly, never appropriate. Avoid every temptation to complain about your husband's leadership. Just, just know we're aware it's difficult and he's probably not Jesus. We're aware if you're struggling with it, talking about it openly, he's not going to solve it. He's not going to tell us anything we didn't know. He's struggling. You're, we know you. Maybe you're, you would be hard to lead, okay? And, and so, so it's not going to accomplish anything. Where we want to lash out, take it to the Lord. Go and pray. There's always an open door, always an open ear from the God of all grace who says that he listens to you if you're in a difficult situation. And 
That is the right line of appeal, we should say. Go to God, not to friends, about the problems of your husband's leadership. Number seven, express thankfulness for him and his work and his provision. Express your thankfulness frequently, explicitly, and clearly, and genuinely. This would go a very long way. If you just, if you just gave him a little scratch behind the ear and said, babe, you, thank you for your work, he is now happy for the next month, rain, hail, or shine. It just express the thanks, express genuine, don't flatter him, don't pretend he's what he's not, but try and look for what he's doing hard. Try, try to look for what he's giving his best in and just say, I want to acknowledge, I want to honor, I just want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. And I would say this, I don't know a single man who is married who didn't wish he could make more money to give his wife and children a better life. And so if your husband is not making much, one of the, the best things you can do as a wife to him is be thankful for what he is doing. It's different if there's laziness and he's being neglectful and making nothing. That's different. But if he is trying and you are struggling with covetousness towards other people's things, I will tell you this, he is struggling with hating himself and coveting against other people's income a thousand times more. And you are one of those, those places that you can come to him and be thankful and express that and help keep him from the temptation of self-loathing and of coveting other people. Be thankful in whatever you can and express it genuinely. And I would say this also, dress modestly. Keep your body for your husband. The, the Song of Solomon speak of a woman's natural bodily beauty as a walled garden. And what in the ancient world, in the great cities, if you, were, if you were a rich family, you would have a walled garden. And everyone knows that behind these tall sandstone walls is a beautiful garden. Otherwise, there wouldn't be walls. Right? Our, our, our modern uh, uh, assumption is, oh, she's walled. She's hiding her body. She's, she's, you know, she's, she's, she's being modest. Must be nothing there worth looking at. Oh, look, she's completely naked. Spare some cloth that is a shirt, and so she's got the goods. And what Song of Solomons is saying is, it's the, the precious treasured garden that you put the big walls up around, because it's valuable, because you're not going to share it just with anybody. You don't want it being trampled and, and devalued and, and, and treated poorly. You want it walled, and that's the picture of modesty. There's beautiful fruits in there, there's wonderful trees, there's blessings of streams, it smells great, it looks great, it is great to be there, but it's not for everybody. It's for the husband. It's a walled garden. It is, you, can, you can walk past a walled garden and know she's beautiful. This, she is beautiful, and yet you can't see all of the fruits on the inside. I'll, I'll just leave the, the imagery up to us. Modesty, where we dress in covering, keeps and walls the garden for the wife. <clears throat> Peter says this. He says in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8 and onwards, Sorry, verse, verse 4 through 6. He says this, Do not let your adorning be external. The braiding of hair, the gold jewelry, the clothing you wear. Now, at that point, some people say, the things he lists are just sinful. Don't have any of them. That's problematic, because he didn't say nice clothing. He just said clothing. So if braiding of hair is sinful, that's why he said it. And gold jewelry is sinful, that's why he said it. Wearing clothes must be sinful, because he said it. No, no, no. Each of those things are good in themselves, as long as they are not the source of your beauty. I'll say it this way. 
lots of cleavage, tight dresses and diamonds, is easy to get attention. You don't have to be beautiful. It's a cheap, easy attraction. I was in the city one time evangelizing, and this dude walked past who had obviously just gotten a tremendous perm. He was in a tight dress, enormous fake breasts, and diamonds. And guess what? He turned every single head in the mall. Because lots of cleavage and diamonds can turn heads even if they're on a dude. So here's what I'm saying. It's just not actually, it's not an achievement. What is an achievement is adorning oneself with modesty that walls the beauty within. Do you, do you see where I'm going with that? Anybody can just flaunt anything. It's not an achievement. Every woman has that and every guy will drop down uh, and drop whatever he's doing to chase it because, because that's just simple biology. Godliness, spirituality on top of biology means adornment of humility. But here's what Peter says. He says, I know, I know that as a woman you, you want to show beauty and that's a good thing. You want to show off beauty, that's a good thing. You want to have something on you that people look at and go, wow, did you see her, did you see her, her hair thing? Did you, did you notice that necklace? Did you see the dress? That was glamorous. Gals want that. It's not ungodly. What is ungodly is wanting to be seen for the wrong things. Here's what Peter says. He says, let your adorning, let the beautiful thing that people notice about you, let your adorning, be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. He just gave you two reasons to value a gentle spirit as your most valuable piece of attire. Don't leave the house without your gentleness. Don't leave the house without putting on your honoring your husband. Make sure that everyone who engages with you walks away going, wow, did you notice how much she honored her husband? That, that, was, that, that was the standout piece of your beauty. And two reasons you should be motivated to do that, because Peter says it's imperishing, that doesn't fade with age, and in God's sight, it is very precious. Who else are you trying to impress other than God? He just told you what he finds smoking beautiful. It's beautiful, just gorgeous. When his daughters address their husbands in honor and respect and show that off, he says that is the standard of beauty. He says, he uses Sarah as an example. He says, this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to dress by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham and called him Lord. Now, that name, that's not prescriptive. You can call him what you want. Ask him if he wants Lord. Might be weird. Might just fit you guys just right. I don't know. But the point is that, that Sarah, just in passing as she spoke to the angels, respected her husband with, to such a degree that Peter says that, that right there, that whole spirit of honor that just leaks out every now and then, that is just shown every now and then, and people say, wow, what a, what a beautiful piece of your attire is your honoring of your husband. You're deferring to your husband. You're speaking of him well. You exalt him. That's beautiful on you. That would be my last piece of practical advice so that we're not here, we're not here all night. And lastly, I would say this. As a woman in marriage particularly... As you aim to be submissive, or maybe as you look back on your life and say, my marriage is gone, or he's gone, or it's in tatters, or it's really struggling, and I know that I've sinned terribly in all these areas as a wife. To especially you, the command of Paul in submission is not divorced from the beginning of the book. 
your right standing with God, your hope in the future, your assurance of being forgiven and being a, a citizen of God's kingdom is not based on your obedience or standard as a wife. It is based on Jesus' obedience in your place. It is based on Jesus' righteousness, and he paid for every failing. He paid for every crude joke, for every harsh word, for every controlling uh, 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 quarrelsomeness, for every sin against God and husband and child in your marriage. God has paid for that in Jesus, and he forgives you for no other reason than that you trust in Jesus. You're a Christian, not because you're a great wife, but because you're in Jesus. That's why you're saved. And is the true, it is true for all of us as we address all of these things about marriage and every other command, command God gives, every single one of us will be found out as a sinner that deserves destruction in hell. Not a single one of us has done anything in our lives that would merit anything other than hell except for the grace of God being shown to us in Jesus Christ. But for the grace of God, we would all be punished by Jesus' life he earned us righteousness. By Jesus' death, he paid our sin. His resurrection assures for us the future of inheritance in the life to come. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Come and welcome to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the only perfect husband whose leadership will always lead you to eternal life and righteousness and pure joy. Believe in him. Let's pray. Father God, we are thankful for the word because in a dark world, in a, in a lightless generation, in a crazy culture that is throwing itself over the abyss into sexual carnality and folly and destructiveness in the gender roles, Father God, we thank you that your word is that anvil. And though it is struck a thousand times, it never breaks. And though it is, it is cursed and thrown aside by a thousand generations, it will still remain in the world as the great and perfect wisdom of God. We thank you for your word. Father God, I pray for those who in hearing this tonight are wives who are delighting in this and, and are happy with this and are even tempted towards self-righteousness. Lord God, please rebuke them. Bring them to repentance where they need it, but point them to Jesus, not themselves, for their salvation. Father God, for those women who are hearing this and are finding it extremely difficult, maybe the first time they've heard this sort of stuff about marriage and they know they're failing or they've been in sin or they just despise the whole notion, would you bring their hearts to a steadied submission to Jesus and his word and then into repentance and then into righteousness? Father God, I pray for those gals who are not yet married, that you would ready their hearts to be able to honor a husband in marriage to honor you. And I pray for anybody that is outside of the Lord Jesus Christ, male or female, single or married, that we would know ourselves as sinners saved only by the blood of Jesus, redeemed only by his work for us, and therefore joyful, equal with all the saints in the church, in your kingdom, with a future assured for us. Father God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for our Savior, Jesus. It's in his name that we pray all these things. And everybody said, Amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.